Brought to you by the Game Reviews and the Unified Gamers Network, you're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast that always remembers to grease itself up before jumping on top of you. I am your unsolicited host, Sinan Kiba, and today we have a menagerie of talent waiting in the wings. So, to my virtual left, he is the returning prodigal son, the man who puts the epic into epic yarn, Mr. Ooh. Joseph Delia. Joe, we haven't really heard from you in a few months. <laughs> now, but I, I don't really want to go into that too much, so could you sum up your whole summer in one word? Fun? <laughs> you see, that that works on a, on a, a number of levels. It does. It does. Fun dot Hi. dot dot question I, mark. I, yeah. <laughs> Hi everybody! I I've missed you all too, and I'm eager to talk about some games on the show. and And thank you very much, Sinan, for the warm welcome back. Oh, it's a it's a real great pleasure to have you back. You've been sorely missed. Uh, I know I speak for everyone on the show and all our listeners. Thank you. Okay, so also to my virtual left, to my further virtual left, we have our regular guests, the Rumble Pack that is Jeffrey Matleff. Hey guys. And the power glove that is Eddie and Zato. Yes! I always wanted to be the so power bad. glove. <laughs> so bad. And we have one more person joining us on the show. A very special guest, in fact. He is to my virtual up and left a bit in Lustrous Leads. And we are proud to welcome him onto the show. He's a freelance writer who you may have read at the likes of Gama Sutra, PC World, Rock Paper Shotgun, Resolution Magazine, and now at Beef Jack, where he is the executive editor. He is, of course, Mr. Lewis Denby. Hello! Hello. Hi. A pleasure it's, to have you on the show, it's, sir. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, thank you. How are you doing today? I know you're a little bit worse for wear. I am. I have a terrible hangover, so I'll try not to let that uh, affect the show <laughs> too much. But it might a bit, just to warn you. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> uh, apparently you're not the only one. Apparently, Jeff, you've got a, hang- a bit of a hangover too, is that right? A uh, little bit of one, yes. Yeah. I was out very late last night. All you cool kids were partying while I spent the night at my mum's house. So, uh, um, on that note, let's get on to the show. So, with our ears prickled and mouths ready, we're going to talk about, with our special guest, a topic which he chose. Lewis suggested at first games that aren't gay, and when we said when he said that, we we kind of fired our brow and asked him to hammer it down into a couple of questions, and that is exactly what he has done. Uh, so let us fling ourselves into the very first of those questions: To what extent do games need rules, objectives, or structure? Dot 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 question mark. Uh, Lewis, I'm gonna, since it's your question, <laughs> I'm going to make you initially answer it yourself. What, why did you put the question forward, and what, what's your kind of sort of preliminary answer to it? Okay, well, um, I basically I find it a really interesting topic um, for a few reasons. Uh, there's, it always annoys me when people uh, talking about a game say, "Oh, I feel that the game wasn't successful because it should have done X, and that should have done is almost exclusively." Um, always something to do with uh, established gameplay norms, as it were. Um, so I think it's really interesting uh, to examine what the medium can do when it steps away from those norms. Um, now, I, I guess the idea of, of, of the concept of a game is very much about um, rules and objectives. So the, I guess the, the biggest way you can step away from um, from uh, conforming to those norms is by stripping away rules and objectives. Uh, as for a preliminary, poli- ugh, I can't talk. Preliminary answer. Uh, <laughs> you know what? It's something I still haven't kind of worked out myself. Um, however, what I would definitely say, and I guess this could open it up enormously wide, but um, I think that the because the interactive medium is so young, um, I think there is a great deal of uh, room to explore the question by making games as well as just talking about them. Okay. And just to sort of clarify on the question, because I, I, I think I may have said it as you worded it, but I, I think you mean video games rather than just games. Of course, yes. Sorry, yes. Okay. So, I mean, that, that kind of brings us on to the whole difference between a game and a, and a video game, which w- we could explore. Um, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? 
Joe, Jeff, Eddie, anyone want to step in and and r- respond? Sure, if if that's okay. Um, I think li- just like um, the real world, which has uh, laws of of physics and uh, things like that, I think that video games need to establish a set of rules by which the action that takes place within those worlds is governed. But as far as um, maybe the philosophical debate between emergent gameplay and a more directed sort of experience, I think that really different games have... Well, they, they have and they they don't necessarily have to all be the same because they all have their own levels of rules. Um. I, I agree with what Lewis is saying as far as, you know, a lot of games stick a bit too closely to the mold, and that is very frustrating. Um, but like Eddie said, that you know, I also kind of... There have been games out there that have tried to kind of say, oh, we're a game with no rules, you can do what you want, go. Uh, something like Nobi Nobi Doi, for example, where there's, I mean, there are set rules. You can't fly wherever you want and, and do anything, but there's no structure to it, really. There's no objectives. It's just kind of a playhouse for you to do whatever you want. And I find, this is more of a personal preference, but I find those kind of games usually don't hold my attention very long. I, I'm an objective-focused person, I guess. Um, so I think it kind of all depends on what you're looking for in a game and whether or not uh, an idea can be grounded to a certain point so that it's makeable, but also open enough so that it's not just Call of Duty 27X. Um, and that's, I guess, the challenge in making a game these days that doesn't follow the strict uh, accepted norms of what gamers like to buy. It's interesting. I mean, the way you use the term playhouse, you often hear the, the, the term playground. And uh, I guess that kind of brings up the, the often sort of discussed... Uh, differences between play and game in terms of play being without rules uh, being uh, like like Eddie was saying emergent um, without necessarily ob- objectives and how games by definition uh, well by some definitions have those those things and I, I always find that it's that's almost too clinical for me like I, I don't say something like Nobi Nobi Boy I find it hard to actually strictly put that down as play because there are still kind of objectives there. You've got the the overarching thing of getting to the you know the next planet. There are all the trophies associated with it on on PS3. Um, so you can't even nail it down to being exclusively without objectives. There are objectives there. I mean, I, I don't know. What I'm trying to say is, is it possible within a video game to really make it objectiveless? Okay, um, I think that you could. I Personally, I'm similar to Joe in that I, I like having objectives. I have a hard time really um, having my interest held for something that doesn't, um, if, if I don't have a clear goal in mind. But, like, like right now, I'm, I'm in the middle of playing Red Dead Redemption, which, you know, is very much a video game. It has objectives and everything. But the first few hours of the game, I spent so much time doing things that were not objectives just because I thought they were funny. Um, you can knock people over in the game just without pushing them, just walking into them and they fall over in the most hilarious way possible and you don't get an achievement for that you don't get um you're not making any progress in the game but just kind of something that's fun to do now it it kind of wore off its charm in you know a a couple hours but for those couple hours just you know knocking stuff out of people's hands and tying people up and kidnapping them and putting them on the train tracks and doing things like that is is a lot of fun um so I, i think that there's there is room for it. I just don't know how much it fits um, my or Joe or um, how many people's sensibilities. Yeah, I would agree that I think that most players probably would find it more difficult to survive on a game world that is completely objectiveless. But like you're describing Red Dead Redemption, those are those are still rules governing the world, yet they're not objectives. So it's it's like if you can create a world that gives you things to do that are just optional, then that can be fun. But it's like in, a, 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 sorry, carry on. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, like it's it's like a, a framework for play. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess games have to be, video games have to be by definition because they're right. they are a thing. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're surviving on on reams of code in a document somewhere on your hard drive. 
they are going to be governed by rules of, of how the engine operates more than anything. Um, so obviously, no game is going to be completely rule-free uh, because there, there has to be some sort of restriction. Otherwise, it's reality, effectively, and even that has rules itself. So it, there's, there's never going to be a game that has no rules at all. Um, I guess maybe restriction is... I know, it's, that's, yeah, that's still a crap word to use. Um, <laughs> I think it's a fair word. The thing that I was thinking about when you talk about Red Dead Redemption was um, was uh, Just Cause 2, which I started uh, by playing through the missions, and after about, I don't know, a few hours of playing the missions, I realised I wasn't having fun at all, so I just stopped playing the missions. Uh, and I continued to play the game for about 20 hours, and thought it was absolutely marvellous, just but not thinking about the missions at all, and had so much fun in that game. And I, I was thinking, actually, my opinion of it was, was probably tainted by having to play the missions, because actually it's such an extraordinary world to explore, such a huge world to explore, with such variety, um, that it, it, it became entertaining in itself just to explore it and see what you could get away with doing within those those sort of sets of... Or within that framework, if you will. It's funny to hear you say that, because how many times have you guys heard someone talk about an open-world game and say how they don't really care for the missions, but just playing around is a lot of fun? It seems like that's just the way open-world games work. Like, they can't get missions right. Like, nobody can. It's something visceral to do with the space, isn't it? To have that space in front of you and say, go explore, do what you want in it. Um, Which, you know, I guess a lot of games are very linear. So you feel almost tunneled and, and pushed and forced into uh, accepting the the instructions of the game. Um, it's kind of interesting to consider like how how commercially viable an objectiveless game would be because I sort of think of The Sims as an example, which in its in its first two iterations was very objectiveless. You know, very much about just experimenting and uh, trying to see what what you could do with these with these uh, avatars and what relationships you could build, this and that. And then, and then they became... The, the third game was much more objective-focused uh, about trying to make the your, your avatar successful. At least that's why I understand. I, might, <laughs> I haven't played the third game, that's why I read. Um, but in, in any case, like you look at a lot of games, they I don't think there are any real examples of games which have um, which have which don't have objectives. Or, what about an MMO like Second Life or something? But is that a game? I mean, I think you could argue for Scribblenauts to be a game without objectives because really the single player component to that game is pointless and it's not why you would buy that game. They threw it in there as a feature basically, but you buy that game for the dictionary aspect of it. For the title screen. Yeah, for the title screen. I spent maybe four hours playing with the title screen and about an hour playing with everything else. And it's... it's, um, I mean, for me, and I assume for many other people, like you know, that got old very quickly. And then when you tried to play the missions, they kind of sucked. So that was the end of that game. But I think that, that at least is something that I've played is the closest I've gotten to a game that doesn't really have an objective. It's more of just a, a playtime, happy, fun dictionary thing that lets you settle bets with your friends and not much else. But how overwhelming do you think it would have been if that game didn't come with those missions to the to the more uh, I don't want to say casual, but you know, like a newer player, someone who who wasn't a traditional player, how, how would they find the game if there wasn't that mission structure in there? See, I think it would have been far more interesting if they actually built like a two D Super Mario Brothers style platformer, and you could just do that stuff within the framework. Like, to actually build a game around that framework would have been much more interesting to me than, oh, here's a title screen, oh, and this other stuff that you're not going to really care about. I think that that game was very poorly handled, and, you know, I I put it down very quickly after months of anticipating it. And I I don't really, you know, like I've said before, I don't really get into things that are just, oh, go have fun and do stuff. I kind of like to have my objectives, and and that type of play, at least in Scribblenauts, did not work for me. I would find it interesting to see how a casual gamer views something like the Scribblenauts home screen versus uh, an objective-based version of Scribblenauts. Because me, you know, as a veteran or whatever you want to call ourselves, um, I'm sort of a little needy and I I like to have objectives, so I get bored, like Joe and Jeff, of objectiveless gameplay for a while, but... Maybe someone who's new can just jump in and play for a long time, 
you know, on something like that uh, title screen. Well, this is the thing. I, I think that a lot of a lot of objective-based stuff is, is based on our expectations of what games are and how games are structured. And 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 you know, we we as humans, I think generally we're, we're not particularly receptive to change. Um, we like familiarity, um, and uh, from a publisher's perspective, of course, objective uh, games haven't historically been enormous sellers apart from something like The Sims, so they're going to be less um, inclined to take a risk as well. Frankly, though, um, as someone who plays a lot of games for a living, uh, I really don't care. I, <laughs> I really would much rather to see more risks being taken in that respect, because I think... Do you not feel it, it would open up a great deal of avenues of to, uh, what sort of things you could create if you, uh, not necessarily created an objectiveless game, but one that didn't follow uh, a more traditionally game-like structure, perhaps? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> breaking from from the mold is always better than sticking with it. I feel. Okay. Um, so a game that I, I really enjoyed that was not objectionless by by any stretch, but far more so than most was Crackdown. You you had an overall goal, you know, to kill these I believe it was twenty one bosses. But you go about it in any order, and you leveled up uh, your skills by using them. So if you drove a lot, you got better at driving, and you kind of go about doing these things in your own way. So I, I felt like it had a really good mix of having an overall objective, but still letting you play. And you could not lose any progress. I, I couldn't get into GTA for a number of reasons, and one of them was when you just played around and, and you know, had a good time and did something irrelevant to the story, and you died. Like just seeing how many cops you could hold off or creating mayhem, you lost even more money than you had when you started that life. And I found it, it, it punished, pu- excuse me, um, punished experimentation. And I felt like Crackdown was like a really just great happy medium. You never had to to drive to any dots to start a mission there. It was just all open from the very first time you, you open up the game. And in the end, it just had just enough drive to keep somebody who, who needs that hook, uh, like me, intrigued the whole time. I really like the idea of, um, of having a sort of a big overriding objective but not hand-holding on the route there, which is what I thought Far Cry 2 was going to be from what people described. Um, that, you know, at the start you're told, kill the jackal, go, and you don't have a clue what you're doing. And, and at the start, that's very true, but as soon as you go and meet your first contact, it quickly emerges that, in fact, there's a very specific mission structure throughout the whole game, and you're essentially just doing mission after mission for contact after contact, and all the, the only vagueness of, of finding and killing the jackal is that you actually don't know where he is. Um, so, but, but how extraordinary would that game have been if it just presented this enormous open world and just said, kill the jackal, and you just had to work it out yourself. You had to go and visit towns and talk to people and, and piece together your own path through the game. I, I had, oh, sorry, you go, Joe. I was just going to say the problem with that is that that would severely limit the appeal of that game, I think, to the very hardcore gamer. Because I think a lot of people... I know that's just the problem with the way games handhold people so much now, but I think if the game just kind of said, all right, go find them, I honestly think that 90% of the people who bought that game would be trading in the next day. And, you know, I understand that, you know, we don't have to make every game for everybody, but I, I also think that we'd never even see a game like that get greenlighted because it, it's not the market right now. And that's part of the problem. Do you think that it would be more so, say, 10, 10, 15 years ago? Well, 10 to 15 years ago, things were vague on purpose in a certain way, but there was also so much simplicity in those games that it was kind of easy to figure out if you just kept working at it. But as a game like Far Cry 2, which is very complex, very big, very open, you know, I don't think a game like that could really work under such openness. You could argue that there are games like that, sort of, and those are Oblivion and Fallout 3. Um, in, in, the, in the sense that you do have this one overriding thing that you're meant to be going down, but the majority you, you of players see, don't see, explore Fall, that. Fallout 3 especially did exactly the same thing. You know that you, you presented with the objective of find your father, and you think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And then you walk out of the vault, and there's immediately a signpost in front of you that basically says, right. go here to start quest. Um, and then from there you pick it up. And the only, in fact, the only game which I can think of that did this, that really took some risk in this respect, was Risen. Has anyone played that? No. The no. very beginning. See, this, was, 
this was a really interesting sort of uh, um, cosmetically Oblivion-esque game. But of course what it did was um, it blurred the lines between main quest and side quests and stuff. So there was never a big arrow pointing you in the right direction to sort of go through the story. And instead you picked up various threads as you uh, got quests off different people and they eventually formed a main thrust of the story. But you, you were never um, handheld on the route there. Uh, and it was the, the game had a lot of problems, but I thought that was such an interesting way of doing it, and it felt really intimidating as a, as a result. But I loved that. I love feeling challenged by games. I guess you're right, though, uh, Joe, in that um, a lot of people would be turned off on that, and so it would be more difficult to get a green light in a project like that. Um, but I think if you marketed it well, it, it could certainly be viable. I feel like essentially what we're talking about is the very same kind of game with triggers for events and and uh, interaction with NPCs and all that, just without little dots on the map. You know, it would be like just removing that part of the interface, and all of a sudden it's a different experience because you don't sure. you don't have a target to go to. You have to stumble upon that target. Yeah, also, and also, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, a lot of the games do offer the ability to turn those off. Mm-hmm. Which I yeah, think I would probably played... be the better way to do that. Yeah. I played Assassin's Creed 2 a little bit like that, turning off all of the uh, map and everything, and just mm-hmm. kind of using the world to, to get to where I was going. And it felt a lot better. But in that game, it wasn't really quite to the level that it seems we are wanting to go with this conversation. I think that the other um, is not just, in fact, it's not even necessarily about the map or the interface. It's, it's more about, um, I think, uh, characters in the game and how they respond to you and how they behave and what they are used for. Um, I think it would be really interesting to see a game that used characters as simulations of, of people who aren't always sure of, of what they're going to tell you or that, you know, who um, don't always speak the absolute truth. And, and force the player to almost play this meta game outside of the outside of the video game, of of working out who to trust, or um, you know if, if they come to a dead end, they might have to piece together some information themselves without it being spelt out by a character who's mainly used just as as a reason to or, uh, an excuse to give some exposition, or you know effectively characters in games, for the vast majority of the time, either tell you the story or tell you what to do next. That's the reason for their inclusion. I think it'd be really interesting to to switch that around a little bit kind of reversing the whole Miyamoto uh, idea of everything have a, has a purpose in a game. Precisely, because not everything has a purpose in life, and if you're going to create an emergent game or an open-world game or something, it, it seems to make sense to acknowledge that. There's a couple of games that I can think of that do have characters that, that behave in this sort of way. One's Deus Ex, which actually had the audacity to have to lie to you. I was going to mention Deus Ex, um, uh, the new Deus Ex, but you carry on. Well, you know, I mean, even the first Deus Ex had characters who lied to you. Um, which is fantastic and, and such a rare thing. The other game that springs to mind is Pathologic, which is a game that no one's played, so no. um, <laughs> probably won't talk about that much. Um, but it's interesting, yeah, I, I had the, the luckiness to go have a look at um, the new Deus Ex Human Revolution, and the, again, they're, they're trying to go down similar routes to the, with the first game. You know, characters won't always say the same thing. There are lots of different ways to go through uh, a mission. They aren't spelled out to you. Um, and these are like very basic things which somehow a lot of games actually don't seem to want to tackle in any way it's just it's I don't know I mean even like say something like Crackdown 2 which which Jeff mentioned you still have a very explicit mission structure in that game and actually one which turned me off from the game because it was so lazy actually mentioned the first Crackdown I never played Crackdown 2 Oh well, it, it's it's the first game frankly but that's <laughs> yeah, a whole I've, separate I, I read your, your review of it and it, it sounded like they they kind of mucked it up and or at least it was added a, nothing to it. It was a copy and paste job. Yeah. Um, the one before we move on to the second question, the one game which because we've talked very much in a in a sense of space, the one game which let's face it, it wouldn't be a great potion if we didn't bring it up that I wanted to bring up was Heavy Rain because I feel like that game would have been better for me if I didn't feel like when I was playing it there was a very explicit objective at the end of it, i.e., to save your son. And I I I feel like it was. You know, we're talking about uh, stepping, you know, the limits of objectives, and obviously David Cage was trying to escape the limits of object- objectives by going for something which he called an interactive drama. But in the end, it felt like any other game to me. I don't know what other people. I know we've talked about it a lot, but uh, Lewis, did you did you get the chance to play Heavy Rain? 
Uh, I only played a very, very small amount of preview build, so I haven't played the finished version or really seen the, the full effects of the game. Um, although what I understand about Heavy Rain is that one of the interesting things is, because of the way it, it's, um, it's structured, is that you, you almost end up in a position where you can, um, uh, you can fail on purpose um, because you want that character written out of the story or you want a different... Uh, consequence to this action or whatever. So actually, in fact, it, in, in an interesting way, rewards failure. And of course, if you didn't have as many objectives in Heavy Rain, you, you, you know, by definition, couldn't fail to the same amount. Um, but like I say, I haven't haven't played a great deal of it. I feel like we we have trodden over Heavy Rain way too much to to go too much into it today. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's, I'm that's just joke. not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably for the best. Let's go on to the, to the second um, question. Actually, I had something else to say about this question before we move okay. on, if that's okay. Um, we were talking about open world games, and I, I agree with Lewis. I've always wanted a game that, that poses some kind of central mystery to you that you have to unravel yourself. I think games like Shenmue and, and you mentioned Far Cry 2 had a lot of potential, and they both fell flat on that. We just had to go from point A to point B and, and hear all the clues. Uh, but one game that, that, I, um, that doesn't tell you any goal at all, at least in the beginning, was the original Mist. And Grant is not an open world game by any stretch of the imagination. It's, you have, there's only one way to solve the game. There's, and actually there are a few different endings, which are, are very interesting because throughout the entire game, even, you know, 90% into it, you don't know what your goal is. And I believe most people get a bad ending at first being misled what, what they're supposed to do. But the actual um, game design of the actual puzzles, you know, are, are very, regimented and have only one solution. I was curious uh, what you guys thought about something like that. Well, just very quickly, the fundamental problem for me with Mist, although I, I absolutely agree, it's fantastic in that it, it totally drops you in there without explanation. The problem is that its puzzles are just so dreadful and so devoid of any logic that you actually can't work it out either. So instead, it feels like it's cheating. It's just hiding things from you to extend itself and to, uh, oh, don't get me started on Mist, basically. Wasted isn't, opportunity. Isn't that just how adventure games go? No, 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 no. Well, they shouldn't. It's, I mean, that's how they go because so many of them are terrible. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I, I, I like the puzzles in Mist, but I get what you're saying. But if it, would you be interested in a game like Mist that just maybe wasn't a puzzle game or maybe um, had puzzles but less puzzly, if that makes any sense, or is more just kind of observing things? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem I had with Mist's puzzles is that, is that you could only see the underlying logic of them once you'd worked them out, if, mm. if, you know, if ever. Um, it would be wonderful to have a game like that, which did have the puzzle still, but which you, you know, it, it, the game somehow gave you something to grasp and, and to use as your starting point to be able to solve them. You know, if, for example, if, if exploring the island led you to um, uh, a note which gave you a hint as to what this machine did, and then you went and researched it more and... You know, you worked out that turning that lever did that, but actually, all you basically did in Mist was turn levers until something happened. Yeah, but you could argue that that's a big portion of the exploration is figuring out what the effect is. I mean, I it's been like a decade since I played this. I can't remember the the very specific puzzles, but I think that once you got something happened, wasn't there like a? Some, I think in the first island there was something you could do to make like a treehouse turn. Or you made some kind of tower or area turn, but like. There were clues to, to let you know how to work this mechanism, and you wouldn't know what the mechanism did until you did it, and then you have to search around the island and figure out what um, what the effect of that was. Like, Oddly, I, I guess we're talking. I guess we kind of come back to the value of objectives here, and, and you know, Mist was very successful in. Maybe you have to do one or the other. Maybe you have to either um, have a, a big overriding objective that's clear and um, a difficult and unusual and, and difficult to work out path to get there, or you, you can make the, ob- the overriding objective unclear, but then actually the, each individual step has to be spelled out more. I don't know. In terms of the, in, in terms of the first ob- example, to bring us back to what Joe was saying about commercially viable, I mean, a great example of that is Demon's Souls. And, uh, you know, Demon's Souls is a very clear objective of what you have to do to, to f- complete the game, but how you get there is up to you in the grander sense you know you can choose which levels to do and there's it doesn't really tell you how to get through these levels and you're not even sure how, what to do once you get to a boss um but that game split critics down the middle some loved it some said well i couldn't get past the first hour and uh, you know again braid is another sort of example of a game like that i just think at, at this stage the market 
whether it be because of, like Lewis was saying, because we're too used to conventions or because critics are just reinforcing that idea. Um, it, it's Which not... we are enormously, I would hasten to point out. Yeah, we are. I mean, you know, look at me. I, I said all that stuff with Crackdown too, and it you know, could be argued that, that is a perfect example of a of a make-your-own-fun type game. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the market's just not, not there at the moment. So, I think on that note, we'll go on to the second question. Hey. Ready? It's more than just a collection of great gaming podcasts. It's more than just a large community of smart, friendly gamers. It's more than your average gaming experience. Whatever you get from your current gaming experience, get more. Come on, listen. If something is interactive and, in quotation marks, playable on a console or a computer, does that necessarily make it a game? I think the the first question I immediately thought of when I, I read that, Lewis, was what do you mean by playable in quotation marks? Um, I, I fear you're reading too much into that. I mean, <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not a game, you're probably not playing it. That's all I meant by that. I see. Okay. Sorry. So, <laughs> I can make I, I, something up if you want. Oh. No. <laughs> I thought that was going to be a, a, a well of mystery, but it, it was not. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's ignore the quotation marks. If something's interactive and playable on a console or computer, does that necessarily make it a game? Um, since he's been away for a bit, Mr. Joseph Delia, what's your immediate answer to that question? I mean, it's. I guess it varies. I mean, technically, Netflix is interactive on a console, but that doesn't make it a game. But also, you could say the same thing about something like Dragon's Lair, where technically you're interacting with it, you're making that movie continue, but you're not really affecting it in any way, shape, or form. Um, So I don't know, honestly. I think that, you know, there are definitely different levels between uh, interactivity and and video game-ness, but um, I don't really know where the line is because I don't really think there is a line. Anyone want to follow in? Do, do you think there's value in, in trying to draw that sort of line, or do you think it's it would be better if we just accepted that there were a wealth of different things that, that are ach- achievable with the interactive media and just accept that there's going to be a huge disparity in, in the differences, uh, in the different um, levels of interactivity in, in the medium, if you like? Yeah, I think it's much better that we just kind of leave it be in a way because, I mean, if you think about, you know, What's the difference really between a TV show and a movie? Technically, yes, one is on a cinema screen and one is on a television, but you also watch movies on your television, and technically they're both just stories that are told very similarly in many ways, shapes, and forms. One's a little bit longer, but really they're kind of the same. Um, you know, I think that it's there's so much out there now that is beyond definition that trying to pin down exactly what makes something a video game based on interactivity is is kind of just like chasing your tail in in many respects. Hmm. I was just going to say, to answer the question, if something's interactive playable, does that make it a game? No. (laughs) I think a lot of quote-unquote video games are not actually necessarily games at all. And I actually, I kind of hate the term video game. I mean, are you talking about, for example, personal cooking trainer? (laughs) <laughs> I guess that that could be one of them. Okay, so I mean, the, sorts of, the sorts of titles I had in mind when I asked that question were, were maybe I don't know things like um, things like Noby Noby Boy or on the other end of the spectrum something like The Path or like Dear Esther or um, basically I'm talk- I think a lot of it is talking about um, ways of telling stories perhaps um, which kind of rest on on some sort of interactivity but 
again, w- without perhaps uh, huge rules or objectives. For example, I mean, did anyone play the path? Oh, yes. And so I know, in, in, uh, sorry, sorry go on. No, no. Uh, so, so, you know, the path gives you one objective, and the only way to complete the game is to ignore it, um, which I think is a really interesting thing to do. I don't think the path was a perfect game by any means, but I certainly think it, it played with some really interesting ideas, and I really loved that one. You know, the, the first thing you see in the game is a, a message saying, stay on the path. But actually, if you stay on the path, you won't progress. The, the problem with the, the path in terms of my, my coming to it was that I knew that before I played it. So, right. you know, that, that was all lost on me. Because and now we all do too. Well, <laughs> sorry. If you, unfortunately, as, as is the, the mandate with your job, you're probably going to find out about it at yeah. some point. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, beyond that, there are uh, interesting things to talk about in the path related to that question because like you say Lewis it is really you are just limited to moving in that world just very literally exploring it and when you find something something happens but it's not something you'll do with that you'll just find something no and in fact there isn't a whole AI system built into you know the player when you uh, take your hands off the controls um, the player character responds contextually to the world hmm and and of course the 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 endings of those games which I won't spoil for our uh, obviously <laughs> sensitive friends, um, but <laughs> you know those, those endings are very impactful because of how helpless you are mm. in in the game and how little you can do to change. Uh, so in other words, it's it's using a lack of interactivity as a focus of itself. Uh, you know, a, a, a because a, I suppose because that's unusual in a video game, it has that impact. I, I wonder I, if, if, if it were more prolific than uh, as a tactic, then maybe it wouldn't be so effective. I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm trying to be careful because um, I've written something for a certain project that touches on this, which won't have occurred before this episode goes up, but it will have happened the day after. I'll oh, probably, yes, I know, I, I know the project. You, you do know the project. I will link to it in the show notes if people are interested. But in any case, I... I in this project, I talked about games that are disempowering, or can a game be disempowering? Um, because if you think, the immediate answer to that question is yes, you think of things like Metal Gear Solid 4, when, when Snake is in the uh, microwave chamber and you're just pre- pushing triangles to make him crawl really slowly, or the nuclear explosion in Call of Duty 4. But these are very brief, uh, t- temporary things. I mean, it's not like, say, you're put into the position of a, a starving child in Africa. And what do you do? What what action can you have, you know, to really disempower you? And you know, other mediums can deal with those subjects uh, and really give us an idea of what life is like, not within their limitations, obviously, but you know, can give us an idea of what life is like for these people. But a game, if a game put you in the position of some, say, uh, someone in in North Korea who really, in every sense, cannot do anything to change their lives, that a wouldn't does it does it work within the definition of video game? And B, it's of course not commercially viable. So I think it's it's a it's kind of interesting to wonder whether games are actually limited uh, by their very essence from being able to discuss and deal with very serious, mature issues like, say, starvation, like, say, rape, etc., etc. Just very quickly, and then I will let someone else talk, honestly. Um, I thought in terms of commercial viability, the path was very interesting because I think it's the first game of its kind that has actually had a very real price tag attached to it. It was only, what, $10, but it's still, you know, standard indie price tag. Right, someone else talk. (laughs) And it did sell, in fairness, a bit. Yes. But yes, others, please talk. Geoffrey, you've been uh, interestingly quiet. What what are your thoughts on all of this? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) I've been thinking a lot, but you were going in a different direction than I, um, than I was initially. I, I guess I read Luther's question much broader than you guys, and I just think about interactivity in general and um, where to draw the line between software and a game. Because if you look at something like Photoshop, that, you know, to me that's not a game, but somebody who, well, for one who, who knows how to use it more than I, um, it's, it's something that's fun. It's a creative endeavor, and when they're done with it, they have... They have a goal, which is to create a, a picture of some kind, and when they're done, they have that. Um, I certainly wouldn't call it a game, and I'm just kind of wondering where that point, you know, where that cutoff is, although that may be a whole different topic entirely. Um, oh, I think it's, it's absolutely essential, because you, you're mm-hmm. describing play, aren't you, within Photoshop? Yeah. Um, and yet, it, it's, it's, nothing, it's not a game. We wouldn't call it a video game by any stretch of imagination, and yet 
what you're describing is something that would fit within most people's definition of a video game. Mm. And Photoshop's probably too overly complicated. There was some program, you know, quote-unquote game that, that my girlfriend was showing me the other day, and you could... You, there were like a, you could select maybe 20 or 30 different elements, and you would place them on the screen. You'd have like water and fire, and then you just watch how they would, um, the effects that they would have on each other, and it would kind of create a, a moving picture. And by the time you're done, you'll have like swirling dust and volcanoes, and just, and it's all just kind of pixel art. But it was really interesting, and it's just something that was really fun to mess around with. And it had that interactive element, and definitely a sense of exploration and seeing how the um, the different elements would interact, but uh, I, I don't know if I would call it a game. It's, well, here's a, here's a thought to, to kind of extend that and to bring you back to Lewis's question of which, where he mentioned on a console or a computer. Do you think if Little Big Planet was released for PC, would we have been so quick to describe it as a video game? Uh, probably. I mean, mostly because of the single player game that was already attached. If it was only the toolkit, then I'm not as sure. Um, okay, Mod Nation Races, which is even more about its toolkit, then. Yeah, but it's, it's racing, though. I mean, that, that's kind of a game just by by definition. You have a, a clear winner and loser of first place and later places. I know. I know what you mean in terms of in terms of if it were released on the PC, though. I think on PC we tend to um, separate our our games and toolkits. So, for example, something like Half Life Two. Which I consider an enormous part of, of that whole saga to be um, the uh, source development kit, um, but it's very much a separate thing. It's freely available to everyone who who buys the game, but you know you buy it, you download it separately, and you learn it separately. And it's not actually it's, it's enormously powerful and allows the community to do some inc- incredible things, but it's not actually a part of the game. Um, so I guess that's where the where the difference is. And another thing, for example, maybe Sleep is Death, if that had been on... Yeah, if, well, actually, absolutely. On consoles, yeah, that's an interesting thought as well. I know, I I think it's... It, it, that kind of almost uh, gives a, contra- uh, a counter-argument to, your, to what you're saying, Joe, about being loose with what a video game can and cannot be, because... I don't know. Uh, if, you, if you are loose, does something like Photoshop become a video game with time? Uh, is that is that acceptable? I mean, should video games be really really restricted to to fun and entertainment? Um, no, I mean, like I, I think it's it's harder to get into something that that isn't fun. But I think that just on a cerebral level, there's been quite a few games I played that I don't think are that fun. Um, I know Eddie will gasp at this, but I, I didn't really enjoy the early Silent Hill games. I thought they were really interesting. I liked reading about them. Um, you know, checking out the forums and message boards and, and looking at all the symbols and metaphors, but actually playing them I just thought was a total chore. But at the same time, I'm not sure that I would say that was a good thing. I think I would prefer them to be a, at least a little more fun. Um, oh, and, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, and, and something like The Path, um, I only played a little bit just because it, it performed terribly on my computer. It was an old machine. But... I did enjoy it. I, I did think that was fun. It wasn't fun in a conventional sense, but maybe t- to me at least I have a, a broader definition of fun. I just, I think for me, anything that is interesting or intriguing, I consider to be fun. So um, in that regard, I do like games to be fun. <laughs> it's an interesting question because I kind of like when games make me feel uncomfortable and, and, uh, they elicit a different sort of emotion from me, which is clearly not fun, yet I still somehow derive a, a type of enjoyment from that, because it is effective, and after playing so many games, I guess I'm seeking more than just fun. Now I'm on like this other level of, of different emotions from video games. Um, so even if it's entirely unfun, and mostly discomforting. Um, I think that that is somehow a positive experience out of the game, which is really weird. Uh, but I guess my answer would be no. Games don't have to be fun. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly how I approach it as well. I and mean, take something like The Path, for example. It's obviously a very unpleasant game with a lot of very unpleasant themes. But I think that's wonderful. I think, you know, why shouldn't we explore that sort of theme? Why shouldn't we make players feel uncomfortable? I absolutely love being made to feel uncomfortable. 
I, I'm a bit of an emo kid at heart. I think I, I think that <laughs> being happy overrated. Games should do unhappy more. After playing No More Heroes, I find myself uh, not as quick <laughs> to say I want to be made uncomfortable in a game because that game is aggressive in making you want to hate it, and it made me want to hate it enough so that I stopped playing it. So <laughs> there's a difference I'm, between well, I, torture. I played it. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's a difference between torture and between, you know, what Eddie's kind of talking about. Like, I, my, I had a similar experience recently with Naughty Bear, which for some reason I tried, and it was literally the worst thing I've ever touched in my life, <laughs> video game or not. But, um, like Eddie, I kind of like being, uh, you know, caught off guard by something and, and have this, this strange, uh, be it fear, be it, you know, sadness, whatever kind of feeling that I wouldn't normally associate with a game. I like it when a game's able to do that to me. Hell, when I was a teenager, one of the coolest game experiences I ever had, and it's kind of sad to admit this, but um, there was this weird thing that EA did called Majestic, which wasn't a game at all. It was a, a search engine that tracked what you were looking at and, and made that part of the quote-unquote game. But what, hap- what it used to do would be like to call your phone and tell you that it's going to kill you unless you find this information or vice versa. It would you know, call your real cell phone. It would send stuff to your printer. It would send you emails from characters in the game that like threatened you or... or Said they were going to do this to you or that to you, and as you know, not fun and kind of awkward as it was to get phone calls from a computer at ten o'clock at night, um, that kind of thing. It, it was cool. It got to me. I kind of enjoyed it in, in an almost awkward way. And, and even playing something like Silent Hill, where most of the time I'm on the edge of my seat, you know, kind of nervous about everything, not really enjoying the combat or the exploration or anything, but kind of just going through it with this this geeky smile on my face because I'm feeling a certain way because of this game, it, it works. And I think that, you know, if a game can tap into that, which not many can, and, and do something unique like that, it, it kind of has an effect on, on most people. But it's just doing that in a way that is both commercially viable and unique uh, in a certain way is, is not easy, obviously. And that's the problem. Mm. Maybe games... That. Oh. That's a, no, you go, Eddie. I said maybe games should come with epinephrine injections. (laughs) (laughs) Just straight up, if if you want to feel a little different, do this. (laughs) Interesting method, yes. That's not family friendly at all, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I think you're on to something, Joe. Like, I, even though I said I I like games to be fun, even though I, you know, as I said, fun for me can mean a variety of things, I think there is some. I find myself maybe most compelled by games that I don't think are fun. Maybe it's just because of word of mouth or whatever, but a game like Silent Hill, for example, um, so many people will talk about that. I always want to go back to those games. Like, I've been dying to, to resume a playthrough of Majora's Mask that I abandoned last year, and I, I found the time component of that game just so stressful, and I just could not gel with it. But I always want to give it another shot. It makes so many people I know like it. and um, So... You know, I, I think that different things work maybe for different people um, naturally, but um, I, I feel like my taste in games has changed quite a bit over the years. Things that I didn't used to like, I've kind of grown to appreciate, maybe once they've become lost. Um, you know, like I, Survival Horror being a prime example, something like that. So, so I, I, you may have convinced me. <laughs> well, Oh, what I was going to say is I think there's there's a thin line between entertainingly uncomfortable and uh, not entertainingly uncomfortable, for want of a better yeah, word. Good point. Um, and I, I think, you know, maybe uh, the, to bring it back to my initial point, maybe something like Silent Hill or uh, the Condemned Games or Resident Evil or whatever, the, the survival horror games, is that you are still quite empowered in those games. You still have... Uh, you know, a control and the ability to change things and to kill things. Um, maybe, maybe this is one of the reasons why I got turned off by Manhunt because that game aggressively removed control from me right from the off by saying, "Here's this madman who's telling you exactly what to do, and you can't stop doing what he tells you to do." And I just, I didn't like that. And and I, of course, I, oh, sorry, sorry go on. no, no, you go. I was just going to say, and of course, Man, Manhunt um, actually ripped control away from you. Um, when you actually did those gruesome killings and stuff as of well, of course, didn't it? yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I w- almost want to get on board with that game because I think it's interesting and it's it's 
stretching the limits and doing what other video games are maybe unafraid to do. At the same time, my own personal line has been crossed, and uh, I just don't I don't want to be a part of it. And I wonder if this is kind of where this is my point that the interactivity in games almost makes that line maybe closer to uh, to your sort of personal. How am I trying to put it? It's quite difficult to explain, but what I'm saying is that that it makes that line much more uh, likely to <laughs> to to be crossed uh, because right. you know you have to take part in these things. I but hey, yeah, I, I, why not cross that line? I don't think we should be afraid to offend people or upset people because you know it has value to it sometimes. But that's the thing I have to take part in it to appreciate <laughs> the game. So yeah, if I turned it off, so it, far. Yeah, if I've turned off what, what Yeah, no, but someone else's line might be somewhere else. So, you know, I don't think it's sensible to, to say we shouldn't do games that do this because it might make Sinan uncomfortable. Oh, no, that's, you know? not, that's not but what I'm saying, but I'm, I'm wondering if that's a problem that video games face because right, of okay, their interactivity. Fair. You know, whereas a film, you know, say something like uh, Grave of the Fireflies, which is, you know, incredibly distressing film, you can take it because you're not part of it and you're watching right, it for an hour and a half. Mean. Manhunt, you have to take part in that for 12 hours. Why would I do that at any point? What would what compels me? I mean, this is why I think disempowering moments in video games are so brief. Because mm. if they were any longer, you wouldn't want to be part of them. Yeah. That's true. But also, I mean, what Lewis is saying is valid as well. Because uh, to to some people, you may need more to really affect them than you might with other people. And I think a big barrier to that to to just going with any idea though is the fact that video games cost a lot to make um so if you do uh like abandon one section segment of the market based on their personal threshold of uh discomfort then it's too big a risk and and essentially it can become a catastrophic financial failure and that is i mean i feel like finances and art are in opposition to one another uh, very often in this industry and others. Um, yeah, but you know what? To, to, just to say that one example, a game that I really don't usually like to point at and say, look, they did something kind of interesting, but Modern Warfare 2 with the, the whole terrorism in the airport thing, that was definitely something that was outside a lot of people's safety zones. I would I would think to the point where they even put that, hey, you want to skip this part? It's really graphic uh, thing before you, you actually play it. And you know, while I, we've talked many times on the show about how that that scene really wasn't that successful, uh, I think that you know maybe um, a different developer can say, well, you know, they kind of did this, and there wasn't this huge uproar, and no one tried to ban it or anything. So maybe we can try and do something that's equally taboo in our game and, and see how it goes. And the, the problem... That you know, actually makes talked... sense in context of the story. Right, as well. exactly. And I mean, the mm. problem, the whole thing is, like, we've talked on the show also about maturity. Like, you know, if if, if a game creator like Ted Levine... Like, uh, I'm sorry, I, I totally forgot the damn the guy's name. Um, Ken Levine. Who created Bioshock? Ken Levine. Ted Levine. Yeah, Ken Levine. Ken Levine, there we go. I'm sorry. I don't know who that's Ted Did Levine. Did you say is. Len Levine? I said Ted <laughs> Levine. I think I was thinking of Ted Price and, and I just... Whatever. <laughs> Um, so Ken Levine, like if he handled like a, a realistic, you know, thing like that, it possibly could fit in maybe sort of a little bit better than something like Modern Warfare. But since every game is kind of, you know, blasting hard rock music while you're shooting terrorists with your AK-47 with unlimited ammo, it's kind of hard to really take that kind of thing seriously, um, no matter how it's presented. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, speaking as, you know, uh, an Iraqi, uh, well, a British person who has Iraqi parents, I was, uh, Intrigued by Six Days in Fallujah, uh, the game yes. which mm. was you know going to be uh, commissioned by Konami, then it had the big Ferrari, and then it got cancelled, mm-hmm. and is still now without a publisher. Um, I I really want that game to be made because I think that's exactly sure. you know going to do what you're talking about, Joe. When you listen to yeah. what the developers saying, they they seem like they really just want to make a recreation of the war and. Right. and get you to understand and it's got you know, they talked to all the people who were involved all these soldiers who came back uh, mm-hmm. and it, but it's probably never going to get made which is no. such a shame they right. should probably just make it a movie it'll get made in a second <laughs> therein lies the problem exactly <laughs>
So I want to thank all our guests for taking part in today's discussion. Thank you much to Eddie, Joe Joseph, Eddie Joe Joseph. <laughs> thank you very much to Eddie, Jeffrey, Joe, and of course Lewis, who is a live panel show. Thank you so much for listening. No worries. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, let's go through some lines. Let's go with Lewis first. Lewis, who are you? What are you doing? And where are you doing this? Um. Wow, uh, I'm Lewis, hi. Um, you may have heard me on shows such as Big Red Potion. Um, no, I'm the executive editor of beefjack.com and I, I suppose I have something to do with a new project which is going to be um, either tomorrow or the day after, depending when this goes online, um, launching called Games? Question mark, Which, funnily enough, is about games that aren't necessarily games. Yeah, bringing it all in. Uh, mm-hmm. Where will people be able to find that? Oh, um, gamesquestionmark.com. Um, it's edited by the, the very wonderful Ashton Rays from The Telegraph. Yes, uh, who's a lovely, lovely chap. And where can he people find you specifically? LewisDenby.com, is that right? Uh, not anymore, because I haven't renewed the domain, so I'll add a WordPress after that. LewisDenby.wordpress.com. Okay. Uh, so, that is Lewis Denby. Uh, let's be kind of quick with this. I know that we've been away for three months, <laughs> Joe, Eddie, and uh, Jeff, but uh, let's try and sort of channel it to the, to the most important stuff. So, um, Jeff, what have you been up to? Um, well, um, for better or worse, my Challenging Conventions article is no more. However, it has is, it is, um, been rejuvenated as a, a new column called Define Design, which is up on Game Set Watch. So um, you can find it there. I've had a couple go up so far. third one should be up shortly. Um, sometimes they post it on Gama Sutra. It's part of their network. So yeah, that's that's what I've been doing. Excellent. We'll link to the to the third one, which I think will probably go up around the same time as, as the show. I don't suspect. Um, uh, yeah, very cool. Uh, and I've read them; they're very good. So people should read them over at Game Set Watch. And uh, you're doing your usual stuff at Jumping Mustache, your blog. Aren't you? Yeah, and you can get my blog and see anything else I've written. But the the new column is the most exciting thing, probably. I was wondering if you move it on again, will you move on to like something which begins with E? Like I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, I can't tell you how hard it was for me to come up with that title. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell everyone here. Sinan actually came up with the title "Challenging Conventions." He was a great help with that, and it was such a great title that I, I could not think of anything to follow it for so long. Um, all all the other ideas I had were were terrible across the board, <laughs> and eventually I came upon "Define Design," and I was like, "Hey." It has the same alliteration, same meaning. This is perfect, and I, I was very proud of it. But I, I don't think I could, I could do it a third time. <laughs> Eschewing enforcement. That's the best I can do. <laughs> I was going to say eschewing it. That was impressive off the top of your head. That's fantastic. Yeah, I haven't been working on that for the whole day. Definitely not. Um, okay, so Eddie Inzato, where have you been doing your stuff, and what have you been doing there? Um, www.gamernode.com uh, You know, just the, the normal stuff We have a few new podcasts up The Versus Node podcast um, You say you the, normal, the normal stuff But it's been throbbing with stuff recently It's like loads of stuff going up I mean, it's been very cool A lot of good stuff so yeah, Lots of reviews, previews We have some columns going up all the time A lot of news, you know and uh, I routinely wonder if there really are people who don't like Braid and Demon Souls all the time at G- GamerNode HQ. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. And uh, and Joe, uh, where have you been hiding for the last three months, and what have you been doing there? <laughs> well, you can look for my new column, Ensuing Enforcements, on BigRedPotion.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting it up later today. Um, <laughs> stolen, but uh, other than that, you can catch me on Twitter. Twitter.com slash slam huge. Yeah, I'm still on my little sabbatical from writing. But Twitter, I'm there. Hi. Excellent. Okay, I'll be very brief about me. I've been doing quite a lot of stuff for play.tm. So if you go there, you'll find a bunch of previews by me. Uh, and I've been podcasting everywhere. <laughs> like, literally, <laughs> it feels like I've been podcasting everywhere. I was at, um, I've been on Game Burst recently. They've got a couple of shows there going up. Uh, game People, uh, Game Critics, everywhere with game in it, I think. <laughs> the gamer scene there you go so um, yeah look look out for me there uh, 
As for us, we are on Twitter. We're at twitter.com slash bigredpotion. We're on Facebook, if you search for Big Red Potion. Uh, and we're also there under the Unified Gamers Network. And we are, of course, at our website, bigredpotion.com. All that remains for me to do is to thank Lewis, Joe, Eddie, and Jeffrey once again for taking part in today's show. And to wish you well and see you in two weeks' time. Hopefully, dot, dot, dot. All the best. Bye.